Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 10. Last week, I covered the Amorites and the Nephilim, both considered to be unusually tall residents of Canaan. I also covered the man known as Anak and the people who descended from him, the Anakites. Finally, I worked my way through the Red Heifer. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up again with the geographic places in the Book of Numbers. So let's get started. The first of these places is Mount Hebron. It's not mentioned specifically as a mountain, but instead as a place simply known as Hebron. They're assumed to be one and the same. As for the specific mountain, it's part of the larger Judean mountain range. The range is on the west bank of the Jordan River, which places it in modern Israel. As far as mountains go, especially when compared to what the Israelites had just left behind in Sinai, they're not exceptionally tall, rising to about 3,400 feet, or just over a kilometer. Backing up a bit, there are a few who believe that Noah planted his vineyard on Mount Hebron. It was here that the kingdom of Judah would be established. Within the range are the hills above Jerusalem and the Judean slopes, which are essentially the shorter foothills. The range runs from Galilee in the north to the Negev in the south. Besides Jerusalem, the towns of Bethlehem and Ramallah are found there and obviously the town of Hebron. To the north are the Sumerian hills. Just to the south is the Beersheba Ered Valley. And, as all of the names I just dropped should indicate, in the mountains were forged much of the history of the Israelites. It's believed that at that time, the mountains were heavily forested, which given how you likely think of the region, as dry and rocky with patches of vegetation. Being heavily forested may seem a little hard to comprehend, but going back to the prehistory of the region, there are researchers who believe that elephants, rhinos, giraffes, and even water buffalo lived there, which would point to a cooler, wetter climate. This shouldn't be terribly difficult to comprehend, as remember, and as I covered in the first several episodes on Egyptian history. At that time, even the now dry Sahara was thick with vegetation. In this range, the Israelites, and likely the prior inhabitants, grew grapes that were turned into wine. And that's it for the mountain range, but still leaves the city. Like the mountains, the city sits on the west bank of the Jordan, it's about 19 miles, or 30 kilometers, south of Jerusalem. I've mentioned it before, that the place known as the Cave of the Patriarchs is located there. Recall this is where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah are purportedly buried. More on that cave in a minute. The oldest artifacts found at the site indicate that it was settled as long ago as the early Bronze Age. The little that has been uncovered from that period point to a sort of fortification. It's likely that the city grew, as by about the 18th century BC, it was destroyed by a fire. And of course, to have been ravaged by a fire, something had to be there. 
Then the history goes dark, until the late Middle Bronze Age. About this time, it appears to have been the home of a yet unnamed Canaanite king. And according to some researchers, this may have been when Abraham was in the area. But do note that in Genesis, it's said that the area was controlled by the Hittites. So, how do we thread that needle? Some have tried, and it involves Gath, the Kenites, the Canaanites, three sons of Anak, and people migrating in and out of the region. It's really far too involved for this podcast, especially when you consider some place Abraham in the region as early as the 24th century BC, and others as late as about the 17th century. So, a span of around 700 years. Combined with this, the rise and fall of numerous kings, city-states, and empires in that period, you end up with more than a bit of uncertainty. All that really matters for this podcast is that at some time, likely when the area was controlled by the Hittites, Abraham bought a burial plot for his dear Sarah. It was at this point that the city became significant in the Judeo-Christian tradition and to a lesser degree in Islam. It was also at this time, and part of the deal to buy the land, that Abraham made a covenant with two local Amorite families. Then, of course, the Hebrew people relocated to Egypt for a few centuries. At the end of that was the Exodus. Finally, while being led by Joshua, the Israelites would cross the Jordan and back into Canaan, an area that included the city of Hebron. The book of Joshua records that the king of Hebron, along with four of his contemporaries, were defeated by Joshua. The actual defeat may have been at the hands of a contingent led by Caleb. The area around the city would have been in the territory of Judah, but the city itself would be given to the Levite family of Kohath. The fields around the city would go to Caleb. Caleb would defeat three giants, Shishai, Elmim, and Talmai, who I covered in the last episode. It said that they had previously ruled Hebron. Later in the Old Testament history, in the second chapter of 2 Samuel, God directs the future King David to relocate with his two wives and entire entourage to Hebron, where he remains for seven years. It was while he was living there that the elders of Israel anoint him as king. Later, his son, Absalom, was in Hebron when he declared himself king and began a revolt against his father. Throughout this time, it was an important city to the tribe of Judah, thought to only have been outranked by Jerusalem, which, at least from an economic perspective, made sense. It was south of Jerusalem, west of the Dead Sea, north of the Negev, and therefore Egypt, and east of the coast, essentially at the crossroads of several important trade routes. It was also one of the traditional cities of refuge, a concept I've covered a couple of times. Hebron would remain important until the destruction of the first temple at the hands of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. It was during this time, in the 6th century BC, that the Israelite residents of Hebron, at least some of them, would be exiled. Many would return after the collapse of Babylon, 
Of course, the Babylonian Empire was relatively short-lived, as was their control of the area. After this, at least as gleaned from uncovered artifacts at Hebron, it appears that the Edomites established control. The city, and the region in general, would then come under the Persians. I covered this empire, at least briefly, when diving into the history of the Egyptians. Next were the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great. During all of these foreign rules, the people of the region were generally referred to as Idumeans. This was almost, but not quite equivalent to the Edomites. The city was razed and burnt by Judah Maccabeus during the revolt he led against the Greeks in 167 BC. Before, during, and after this, and through the Roman era, the people tended to continue to be referred to as Edomites. During Roman rule, it was part of the region ruled over by Herod the Great. Like I've mentioned before, he's generally given the suffix the Great due to his many construction projects. In Hebron, he had the wall that surrounds the Cave of the Patriarchs built, a wall that still stands today. Later, during the First Jewish-Roman War, Hebron was captured and plundered by Simon bar Joya, one of the insurrection's leaders. Do note that this was a bloodless capture. What happened next was not quite as damage-free. Emperor Vespasian's general, Sextus Vetilinus Sariales, according to Josephus, killed everyone in the city, then burned it down. Later, a slave market was established in the city, where captive Jews were traded. The territory remained in Roman hands, and as the empire moved east and became Christian, changes were afoot in the city too. In the 6th century AD, Byzantine Emperor Justinian I had a Christian church built over the cave of the patriarchs. They also kicked out all of the Jewish residents of the city. Islamists would take over in the 7th century. Following this, the Islamic caliph Omar ibn al-Khattab allowed Jewish people to return to the city and construct a small synagogue. The Islamists would then convert the Christian church to a mosque. But overall, at the time, it was considered a relatively minor city. Muslim rule would last until 1099, when the Christian crusader, the De Bullion, captured Hebron and renamed it Cassilian St. Abraham. The crusaders would then convert both the mosque over the cave and the small synagogue found in the town to Christian churches. They would also restore the crypts in the cave with new shrouds placed over whatever was left of the remains, and then had the cave somewhat sealed up yet again. A description of how the cave was laid out was recorded, though. In 1170, Benjamin of Tudela, a Jewish traveler and writer, visited the city, which he called by its Frankish name, St. Abram de Braun. He wrote, Here there is a great church called St. Abram, and this was a Jewish place of worship at the time of Mohammedan rule, but the Gentiles have erected there six tombs, respectively called those of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. The custodians tell the pilgrims that these are the tombs of the patriarchs, 
for which information the pilgrims give them money. If a Jew comes, however, and gives him a special reward, the custodian of the cave opens unto him a gate of iron, which was constructed by our forefathers, and then he is able to descend below by means of steps, holding a lighted candle in his hand. He then reaches a cave in which nothing is to be found, and a cave beyond, which is likewise empty. But when he reaches the third cave, behold, there are six sepulchres, those of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, respectively facing those of Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah. About 17 years later, in 1187, Muslim forces would retake the city, and they may have had assistance from a few Jewish fighters. But not long after that, Richard the Lionhearted would regain it for the Crusaders. Of course, it would eventually fall back into Muslim hands and would remain so through the Ottoman Empire into the 20th century. Backing up in the timeline, during this Muslim rule, as you would be correct in suspecting, the church over the cave was reconverted again back to a mosque. When this was done, entrance to the cave was again limited, this time to only Muslims. Though non-Muslims would frequently disguise themselves as Muslims to gain entrance, while the inquisitions were being conducted in Europe, the Ottoman Empire was expanding into the region that included Hebron. Both of these events caused and coincided with many Jewish families leaving Europe and relocating back to the Levant. Several of these families, meaning between about 8 and 10 families, would take up residence in Hebron. At the same time, there was an influx of Bedouins from the Arabian Peninsula into the region. Like the Jewish families, many of these nomads would settle there. By 1850, there were about 50 Jewish families in the town, many of both Eastern and Western European descent. Given the relations between the Muslims and Jewish people in the region over the past half century or so, it should not be surprising that the different groups did not get along 500 years ago either. The ruling Ottomans on several occasions manufactured crises, such as falsely accusing a Jew of murder, in order to extort money. But all wasn't bad. The Ottomans did restore, again, the tombs of the patriarchs, covering the sepulchres in silk carpet embroidered with gold. These were layered one on top of another, with Abraham's tomb having nine silk carpet layers. Of course, like I've touched on before, the Ottoman Empire collapsed in the early 20th century. In this region, the British would take over in late 1917, in a period known as the British Mandate. Despite the British rule, the Cave of the Patriarchs remained closed to non-Muslims. A decade later, a strong earthquake hit that left no buildings undamaged, some completely leveled. Two years after this, rioting Arabs massacred some 65 Jewish residents, including women and children. At the same time, the rioters raised many homes and synagogues. To their credit, several Arab families sheltered their Jewish neighbors, protecting them from the rioters. The Jewish families would remain in Hebron until April 1936, when, out of an abundance of caution, 
the Brits would relocate the families. Only one Jewish family remained. That family would end up leaving in 1947 as the UN voted to partition the region and establish the Jewish state of Israel, granting it land that the family did not think would include Hebron. In 1948, at the beginning of what's known as the Arab-Israeli War, Egypt seized control of Hebron. Soon after this, Egypt and Jordan both sought to control the city. Eventually, late in that year, an armistice was signed and Jordan gained rule over the town. Then, in 1967, tensions in the region escalated to an all-out war with Israel fighting Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq in what was known as the Six Days War. In this short conflict, Israel gained territory that included the city. Then, in 1995, as part of the Oslo Agreement, followed up by the Hebron Agreement in 1997, the city was split into a Palestinian sector and a Jewish sector, all still located within the nation of Israel. But the Palestinian sector is, at least on paper, controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Of course, each side disputes the legitimacy of the other's presence. That's not quite it for the city. There are a few in the Jewish religion that give the city significance beyond that of the Cave of the Patriarchs. Some believe this is where Adam and Eve settled after being expelled from Eden. Also, in Given the First Family Story, they believe that near this site Cain killed Abel. Some Christians, as well as Jews, believe that Adam was formed from the nearby red clay, found in a field near Damascus, and Adam and Eve were buried in the cave that would later become the Cave of the Patriarchs. Finally, there are some Christians who believe that the city was home to Mary's sister Elizabeth. That would make it the birthplace of John the Baptist. And that's it for Hebron, the mountain range, and the city. Next on the list is a place called Eshkol, or more specifically, the Wadi Eshkol in Numbers 13. Later, in chapter 32, and in Deuteronomy 1, it would be called the Valley of Eshkol. The place was likely named after the Amorite man found in Genesis 14, and the valley was likely carved by the stream. In Genesis 14, Eshkol, along with his brothers Mamre and Aner, unite with Abraham to chase after the Elamite king Chedorlaomer, likely around the 18th century BC. This was after the king took Abraham's nephew Lot hostage. Simple deduction leads to the thought that the valley was where the man lived, or at least where he was thought to have lived several hundred years earlier. In numbers, it was in this valley, near the brook, where some or all of the spies harvested an enormous cluster of grapes. The description of the grapes lends to the interpretations that they were giant grapes. And why not? Giant people likely have to feed on giant fruit. Specifically, we're told that, and they came to the Wadi Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. What's unclear is if this single cluster had a large quantity of grapes, or if each individual grape was exceedingly large. 
Whichever it was, it was worthy of being included in the narrative that's lasted thousands of years. The footnote in the New Revised Standard records that the word eshkal translates to cluster, which adds to the confusion, making it more likely that the place was named after the grapes and not the man. Unless the man was also named after the fruit. Don't worry, there isn't a quiz. Also through deduction, it seems the pomegranates and figs found there were less remarkable. What's unknown is where this place is. And that's it for this valley, and this stream, or cluster. The next place on my list is Heshbon. This was an ancient town situated on the east bank of the Jordan River. This place is in what is today the country of Jordan, and about 50 miles east of Jerusalem. In that era, it would have been in the kingdom of Ammon. After the Israelite takeover, being east of the Jordan, land was assigned to the tribe of Reuben. At least initially, it would later end up under the control of the tribe of Gad. The city itself was right on the border of the two tribes, so control went back and forth. As the tribes gave various cities to the Levites, a subject I covered in Chapter 3, Episode 67. This city, too, would be assigned to the priestly tribe, specifically to the house of Merorite, one of the four primary subdivisions of the tribe of Levi. In both Numbers and Deuteronomy, Heshbon is said to be the capital of the Amorite king Sihon. Thinking back, Moses led the Israelites to victory over that king in Numbers 21, a battle thought to have occurred on the outskirts of the city. Remember this king, so his kingdom, was presented as being powerful, at least enough to have scored a previous victory over the king of Moab. And when he did so, he gained control over that territory too. So, at least in this portion of the narrative, Heshbon would have been the capital of a somewhat important kingdom. Moses died soon after the battle, and later in the Old Testament, it seems that the city was lost to a foreign power. As in both the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, it was mentioned in groupings with other cities held by Moab. There's also an allegorical mention in the Song of Solomon, where the author compares his love's eyes to the pools of Heshbon. This is thought to refer to the grand fish pools of Heshbon, Modern excavation of the ruins have uncovered that there were large reservoirs in the city. In the original Hebrew, the word that translates to fish pools may also be simply a very clear reservoir. Later in their history, at least according to Josephus, the town would come to be controlled by the Judeans, by Alexander Janaeus the Maccabee, when the 2nd century BC was changing to the 1st. Later, it would be ruled by Herod the Great, who is thought to have built a fortification there. When the area was in disarray following the Jewish revolt against the Romans, Pliny the Elder, and this may be the first time I've mentioned him, but he wrote that the town came to be influenced by Arabs, who he claimed were from the city. Later, it seems to have come back under Roman authority as Ptolemy wrote that it was part of Roman Arabia Petraea, such is the lot of a frontier town. It's presumed with the downfall of the Romans and the rise of the Islamists 
the town would come under Muslim domination and would remain so, even through the invasion of the Crusaders. Following the Islamists were the Ottomans, who dominated the area through the 20th century. The place that's thought to be the location of the ancient city is about 12 miles or 20 kilometers southwest of Amman, Jordan. Like I've hinted at before, there have been modern excavations of the site thought to have been the ancient city. But in these excavations, there have been no Bronze Age artifacts found, leading some to speculate that the city is of a more recent origin and is not the same as the one mentioned in Numbers. But the artifacts did conclude it was a Roman-era city. Who knows? And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue working through the Book of Numbers. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.